So what I'm going to do is following, uh, as you can see on that notes, if you're looking at them, I'm going to talk about the setting and structure of Joshua. Uh, then I'm going to be following, expanding on a um, simple two-part structure of the book of Joshua. And then uh, I'm going to skip from there on your notes to section three, and we'll go over the stages of the conquest and the distribution of the land as the two main sections, and then we'll return to the themes of the book of Joshua at the end. Uh, Joshua, of course, is the book that follows the end of the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. But it's important to see Joshua in the context of that, uh, of the Pentateuch, and especially the context of Deuteronomy, the final uh, book of the Pentateuch. Uh, and the setting where Joshua and Israel are at the beginning of the book of Joshua is the same setting where they are during the entire book of Deuteronomy. Uh, by the time Deuteronomy starts, Israel has come out of Egypt. They've finished their uh, decades of uh, wilderness wanderings. They're poised on the uh, edge of the land on the east side of the Jordan in what's called the Transjordan area. Uh, and they're ready to cross over and conquer the land. Uh, that's the setting where they are in the book of Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy is uh, largely a uh, kind of uh, covenant renewal uh, for Israel. It's largely a, a series of sermons, exhortations that Moses gives to Israel on the, uh, on the eve of their entry into the land and their inheritance of the land. Uh, a lot of overlap with previous sections of the Pentateuch. Uh, the book of Deuteronomy is structured by the Ten, ten Words of the Ten Commandments. Uh, different sections of Deuteronomy are expanding on different parts of the Ten Commandments. Um, uh, and there's uh, particular instructions for what Israel is supposed to do once they go into the land and what their mission is in the land. Uh, the setting is important. Israel is on the east side of the Jordan, so they're going to be crossing westward into the land, crossing over the Jordan River and entering the land moving east to west. And that may seem like a minor point, but it's a it gives us a hint about what, uh, what the land supposed to is for Israel and what it represents. The east-west orientation is significant all the way through the Pentateuch, and it's set up by the early chapters of Genesis, where Adam and Eve, of course, in the garden initially, but then they're expelled from the garden, and the cherubim are put at the gates of the garden on the east side of the garden. And so they're expelled eastward in an eastward direction, to return to the garden, they would have to return in a westward direction. So eastward movement in uh, Genesis is typically movement away from the presence of God and away from the garden. Westward movement is movement back into the garden. Uh, so you have Adam and Eve kicked out uh, to the east of the garden. Cain is cast out from the land of Eden and he's cast out to the eastern lands. He's further away from the Lord. Uh, and uh, the return is always a westward return. Uh, so that's, that's where Israel is poised. They're poised on the east side of the Jordan. They're going to go across the, across the river and enter the land. That's a kind of return into the garden. And the, gar the land is supposed to be uh, the, the garden land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey, a land that has all kinds of gifts and riches for them, a land that's full of things that they didn't prepare. Moses reiterates this repeatedly in Deuteronomy. You're going into the land that has vineyards that you didn't plant. It has wells that you didn't dig. 
It's full of cities that you didn't build. Uh, it, this is not just a raw, this is just not just raw material for building a land. It's a place that God has already prepared. Um, it's been corrupted and it needs to be purged, but it's a place God has prepared for them like the garden and Israel is the Adamic people that's returning to the garden and receiving this garden land as, 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 an, as an inheritance. In order to do that well, of course, Israel has to keep covenant. That means they have to obey the Lord in the way they conduct the conquest. They have to obey the Lord in the way they live once they have entered the land and settled there. As long as they are keeping covenant, obeying the Lord, and following his commandments, they inherit the land. But Moses warns often, but especially at the end of Deuteronomy, if they resist the Lord and disobey him and break covenant, then they'll be expelled from the land uh, and they will be cast out into a, a land that's not their own. Uh, and uh, in Deuteronomy 30, there's what almost sounds like a prophecy, not just a warning, but a prophecy about exile. If Israel corrupts the land the way the Canaanites have corrupted the land, then the land is going to vomit them out just as it vomited out the Canaanites. The land is personified in uh, the, in Deuteronomy particularly, uh, the land has gotten sick of what the Canaanites do in the land and the land's going, to, uh, the land's going to expel them. But Israel could have the same fate if Israel pollutes the land in the way that uh, the, uh, the Canaanites have done. Uh, so they have to keep covenant. They have to obey the Lord. They have to trust him. And especially they have to trust him in the way they conduct the conquest. Uh, and the aim of the conquest is brought out, I think, most clearly in Deuteronomy 12. This is going to be an important background passage for understanding what's going on in Joshua. Uh, this is the, Deuteronomy 12 is the chapter where uh, Moses is giving the people instructions about the, uh, the sanctuary, place of God's name where he, uh, where he will choose, that he will choose once they've settled in the land. But the, the setup here is uh, describes what the point of the whole conquest is. So these are the statutes, the judgments which you shall carefully observe in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess as long as you live on the earth. You shall utterly dispossess all the places where the nations whom you dispossess serve their gods. Notice it is a dispossession of the Canaanites, the people, but it's a disposition of the places where they serve their gods, their false gods. On the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree, you shall tell, tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and burn their asherim with fire. You shall cut down their engraved images of their gods and you shall obliterate the name from that place. You shall not act like this toward Yahweh your God, toward the Lord your God. Okay, so um, the negative side of the conquest, the focus here is on purging the land of idolatry. This is a land that God has chosen for Abraham and Abraham's descendants. He's promised Abraham's descendants but the Canaanites have corrupted the land and polluted it uh, by their idolatries. And so he's sending Israel in in order to purge the land of idols, shatter all the idols, close down all the shrines, all the altars where Canaanites worship, uh, obliterate those, purge the land of idolatry. That includes purging the land of idolaters. But the reason why they're purging it is not because they're Canaanites, 
or because they're different, uh, they're different people, it's because they are attached to these idols that are being purged. But that's only the negative side of the conquest. The, the, the purging of idolatry is uh, a preparation for the positive side, which the Lord goes on to explain in the following verses, still in Deuteronomy 12, verse 5. You shall seek the Lord at the place the Lord your God shall choose from all your tribes to establish his name there for his dwelling, and there you shall come. There you shall bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the contribution of your hand, your votive offerings, your free will offerings, the firstborn of your hawks, herd on all your flocks. Hawks are herds and flocks. That's a new word I just invented. If you want to say herd and flock and just say one word, it's hawk. The firstborn of your herds and flock, and your herd and your flock. Okay. So this is all the, all the kinds of offerings that Israel offers have to come to this one place now. Uh, there you, shall, you and your household shall eat before the Lord your God and rejoice in all your undertakings in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not do what you're doing today, every man doing what was right in his own eyes. For you have not as yet come to the resting place and the inheritance which the Lord your God has given you. Okay, when, when this is a phrase that will come up in uh, judges, you might recognize it from judges, doing what is right in their own eyes. And we'll talk about that uh, tomorrow when we get to judges. But here in Deuteronomy 12, that phrase uh, means uh, worshiping wherever you please. That's the specific significance of it, because the Lord is saying, you're no longer doing what is right in your own eyes, worshiping wherever you please. You're now going to have to worship at this one place where I set my name. That's, that's, the, that's the one sanctuary that will be available to you, and you bring your offerings, and there you'll gather with your households to rejoice and eat and drink, uh, and uh, this will be the culmination of the, of the entire conquest. So the conquest is a war against the Canaanites, a war of utter destruction. We'll, we'll talk about that theme in, the, in a bit. It's a war of utter destruction against the Canaanites. The aim of the war of utter destruction is to purge the land of idolatry and to set up the Lord's place as a place of worship and a place of festivity. So the culmination of the whole, the climax or the end point of the whole conquest is for Israel to have a land where they can eat, drink, and rejoice uh, under the blessing of God. Okay? Everything is moving toward this great, uh, this great uh, gift of shalom, of peace, which is not just pacification and lack of war, but uh, enjoyment of the goods of the land and a fullness of life, which is symbolized by activity. That's, that's, where, that's where all of the mayhem and destruction of the book of Joshua is heading. That's, that's why this is all going on, so that the people of God can eat, drink, and rejoice before the Lord. Uh, one key thing that uh, is necessary for doing this, and this will also highlight something that we want to look at in Joshua. One key thing is memory. Uh, Deuteronomy is a book of memory. Uh, uh, Moses uh, regularly speaks about remembering what happened in uh, your past. He's talking to a new Israel. Uh, you might uh, think back to the book of Numbers. The beginning of the book of Numbers, they take a census. 600,000 fighting men in Israel. Then they refuse to go into the land. And for 
uh, let's say roughly 40 years, they're wandering around in the wilderness. That generation that refused to go into the land dies, except for Joshua and Caleb. They're the only two that, uh, that survive. And then it's a new Israel. It's their children that are now at the edge of the, the land and they're going to enter the land and possess it. So uh, the people that Moses is talking to were either children or not even born. I mean, you could have not been born at the time of the Exodus and be early middle age by the time you're ready to conquer the land. It's been 40 years. You could, you could be in your mid to late 30s and have no memory, no personal memory of Egypt, no personal memory of the early rebellions. You just have been living in the wilderness your entire life. Uh, and yet Moses speaks to them of the Exodus and of the wilderness as something that happened to them, to this new Israel, because it happened to their fathers. It's also their experience as a people. And they need to remember that. But part of the reason he's emphasizing memory is because they may not have personal memory of it. They, they were not alive at the time. Uh, so this is what he says in uh, Deuteronomy 7. This is one of the places where he's talking about memory. If you should say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? That, of course, is exactly what the spies said when they went into the land back in the book of Numbers. These nations are too great. They're, they are giants. We're like grasshoppers in front of them. They've, have, they've got, they've got uh, nuclear weapons. They've got tanks. They've got fortified cities. There's no way we can take the land. If you say that, Moses says, you shall not be afraid of them. Why not? But you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. And most of these people would not have been alive at the time, but they've been reminded of these stories of what the Lord did to Pharaoh. If the Lord took down Egypt and destroyed Pharaoh and destroyed, really destroyed Egypt, think about what would happen uh, to Egypt if, uh, they had, as they went through the ten plagues. Okay. Um, they have, their crops are destroyed by locusts, uh, what's left is destroyed by hail, there's pestilence, you know, and then at the climax of it all, the firstborn children throughout Egypt die and Pharaoh dies. This is a huge political, economic, social crisis for Egypt and the Lord just dismantled Egypt. And the Lord is saying, remember that. You face, you face these people who seem too powerful for you. Remember what I did in Egypt of the great trials which your eyes saw and the signs and the wonders and the mighty hand, the outstretched arm by which the Lord brought you out. Again, many of them did not see that personally, but they have a recollection of it because of what Moses has taught them and the stories their parents have passed on. So shall the Lord your God to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Okay, I'll stop there. But memory is a key part of what Israel needs to do in order to conquer the land rightly. Uh, they need to remember what the Lord did in Egypt. Expect the Lord to do it again. Uh, what he did in, to Pharaoh in Egypt, he can do to all of the kings of Canaan. Uh, and just as he dismantled uh, Pharaoh, he can dismantle them and give the land over to his people. Uh, Deuteronomy ends uh, toward the end uh, with a great song and hymn of memory. And I'll just point to this uh, briefly. Deuteronomy 32 is called this... Is, sometimes referred to as the Song of Moses. It's a song that reviews some of Israel's history and uh, uh, memorializes it. Uh, it also prophesies, in a way, about Israel's future. 
It is, um, this is supposed to be committed to memory by Israel so they can remember what the Lord did. And they, the memory is not just so they can live, that, not at all so they can live in the past, the glories of the past. They remember in order to be encouraged for the future, right? They remember so they can meet the challenges of today. If God helped Israel before, he'll help us now. So if they have this, this song is supposed to be on their hearts and in their minds, in their souls, so they can remember what the Lord did and they can fight and conquer faithfully. Okay. Deuteronomy 32 is one of the most quoted, most alluded to passages in the entire Bible. Uh, little fragments of it are all over the place. Uh, it's worth uh, studying it in depth to, uh, so you can start picking up those references. Um, so that's the setting that Israel's in. It's a new Israel. They're poised on the east side of the land, ready to cross over. Uh, they've just renewed the covenant. They've heard all of the law expounded on, and they've been given their marching orders, their mission, go in the land, purge out the idols, set up the Lord's house in the midst of the land, uh, and do that remembering what the Lord did in Egypt so that you can be encouraged and expect him to do it again. But of course, all of this is being done in the absence of Moses. The very last chapter of Deuteronomy is Moses' uh, departure. Okay. Um, did he die? Did he not die? We know that he, that he left and uh, was, not, uh, was not found. Um, a burial place that the Lord provided for him. Uh, Moses is dead. And a, the death of a leader, we're going to see this in several places as we go through the books that we're studying this week. The death of a leader especially a leader like Moses, who's been everything for Israel. He's been their deliverer. He's been their teacher. He's been their prophet. He's set up the whole priestly and sacrificial system. He's functioned like a king. He's a judge. Moses is the guy, and now he's not there anymore. So this is a crisis moment for Israel, as the death of Joshua will be a crisis moment at the beginning of Judges. As the death of Samuel will be a crisis moment in the book, within the book of Samuel. Uh, as the death of uh, Solomon is a crisis moment in the early history of the monarchy. The death of a leader is a crisis moment. And it could go one of two ways, right? Uh, you can have a great leader who is, whose successor doesn't live up to his predecessor, who can't carry out the mission, can't continue the mission. That's going to be the story of the book of Judges, largely. Joshua's dead. There, there's a periodic new Joshua's and conquerors coming up, but by and large, Israel fails in its conquest. Or you can have a situation like um, you know, Jesus, who also goes away and turns over everything to 11 um, not entirely inspiring apostles, and says, it's good for you for me to go away. If I go away, then I'll send the Spirit to be with you. If I go away, then you'll face all of these challenges, trusting me in my absence. I'll be, I won't be a parent to you. My Spirit will be with you, but I won't be with you in person. That's good for you. It's like, you know, sending your teenage kid out uh, for the first time to some kind of... Uh, some kind of adventure where they're without the, you're sending a child out without his parents for the first time. Okay. 
maybe not a teenager, maybe earlier than that when you should yeah, probably start earlier than that. Um, it's good for them that you're not with them all the time. Because they have to grow up. They're going to have to learn independence. They have to learn to make their own decisions. It could go that way. So the question at the beginning of Joshua is partly, uh, is Joshua going to prove to be a worthy successor to Moses? Or is he not? And as we'll see, much of the early part of uh, Joshua is designed to answer that, to answer that question. Uh, one other thing I want to say about the, the ordering and the arrangement of Joshua, or rather, a context for Joshua. Um, this is still the first section of your notes, setting and structure. Uh, you'll see in the middle of that page, the large, large section of that page, is a chiastic outline of the hexateuch. Pent, Pentateuch means five books, pent. Hexateuch means six books, right? So the Pentateuch functions together as a unit. Moses is the dominant figure, at least from uh, Exodus on, and it ends with his departure. So you can see why the Pentateuch is, uh, functions as a unit. But in important ways, uh, uh, Genesis through Joshua functions as a unit within the Old Testament. And you can even think of the first seven books of the Bible Genesis through Judges as functioning as a seven-book collection. Okay, all of those have different. Uh, they throw they throw light on different aspects of these books. Uh, but one of the things I I wanted to point out this is from James Jordan. This uh, chiastic outline of the Hexateuch. If you have it in front of you, this is the kind of outline that I. Uh, this is the chiastic outline again. I have you have you been introduced to chiasms? Okay, so. Uh, so we have a, a complex chiasm. The center in this outline is the Day of Covering, which is the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. But you'll notice on the outer edges, this starts with Abraham and ends with Joshua. So uh, Abraham is promised the land, and then the stories of the patriarchs, that promise keeps getting reiterated. The beginning of the fulfillment of that promise starts with Joseph's descent into Egypt at the end of the book of Genesis. That promise to Abraham of the land is fulfilled in the A prime section, which is the settlement of the land in the last half of Joshua. The judgment on Egypt in the opening chapters of uh, Exodus is matched by the judgment on Canaan in the sections of Joshua that deal with that, with that uh, conflict, the conquest. Uh, there's a Passover, of course, in uh, the night before Israel leaves, leaves Egypt, the first Passover, in Exodus 12 and 13, when the angel of death goes through the land, those who have the blood of a, a, a lamb or a goat on the lintel and doorposts of the house are rescued. Um, and then when, once Joshua and Israel gets into the land, they celebrate uh, another Passover. So there's uh, Passovers. They've been celebrating Passover, presumably they've been celebrating Passover each year during the time in the, in the wilderness, but that's not highlighted for us. Uh, it's mentioned a couple of times, but it's not highlighted in the way that it is in Joshua. So we have the frame of two Passover. Uh, we have a crossing of the Red Sea in Exodus 14 and 15, matched by the crossing of the Jordan uh, in the opening chapters of the book of Joshua. Okay. So you can see that the book of Joshua is uh, fulfilling in reverse order 
on the one hand, promises that were made to Abraham and then the events of the Exodus, uh, that's going to be significant as we look at um, the book of Joshua and look at how the conquest mimics the story of the Exodus in a number of important respects. Uh, And then the other outline I wanted to point you to is on the second page of your notes. Um, This is from a pastor friend uh, who is a pastor in the state of Illinois uh, named Bill Smith. And uh, this is, again, a chiastic outline of the book of Joshua itself. Uh, I'm not going to expand on this. Just point to the center of it with the renewal of the covenant at uh, Mount Mount Ebal and Gerizim in chapter 8. We'll talk about that in just a bit. Um, but that's, that's for your, uh, your further study if you want to uh, continue to look through it. I also want to refer again to um, David Dorsey's book that I mentioned this morning. Um, Dorsey um, frequently, though not always, but frequently ends up providing a chiastic outline for the Old Testament books, and he's dealing with each Old Testament book. So He's got a chiastic outline uh, from Genesis 1 to the end of uh, the book of Joshua. So the whole, the whole hexateuch, he thinks, has a chiastic structure to it. And then he also has a, uh, I think he's got a chiastic outline for Joshua as a whole. But he's got uh, sections of Joshua that are outlined. Uh, again, the, the uh, I didn't actually expand on this during the morning, but uh, I'll say a few words about it. The, the, uh, the, ordering of the, the ordering of the text uh, is not just a literary design, but can contribute to the meaning of the text. It, it helps us to understand transition points in the text. When you look at um, corresponding sections of a chiastic structure, like the beginning and the end, those sections are parallel in some way. How are they parallel? That can lead, uh, that's part of the context for each of those passages. Um, so, uh, and that's important to, it's important to know that uh, biblical writers are using that kind of structure because uh, most mo- modern writers don't consciously use that kind of literary structure. Ancient writers did, not just in the Bible, but in ancient literature generally. Chiastic structures are very common. Uh, there are a lot of chiastic structures in the Homeric epics from Greece. Uh, there are chiastic structures in uh, ancient, ancient Near Eastern literature. Uh, there are rhetorical textbooks from Greece, Greek and Roman periods that cite chiasm as one literary device that you use in, when you're constructing a speech. So this, was, this is not something that's uh, unknown to ancients and just in the Bible. But the, we don't use it, and so it, we, can lose, uh, we can lose part of the uh, meaning of a passage if we don't recognize that it has this particular order. So if you, if you don't realize that the first section of, the, of this of some passage corresponds to the last section, and they're supposed to, they're supposed to be mutually illuminating. Each sets the context for the other. Okay, um, if you don't recognize that structure, then you can lose that con- that context. And as we were talking about this morning, uh, context is uh, context is king when you're interpreting. So um, trying to trying to sort out the uh, the ordering of a text is always. Uh, uh, useful. So um, let's skip over to, um, if you're on your notes, skip over to Roman numeral number three, the three stages of conquest over seven years. 
and I want to elaborate on that. Um, I'm, going to, I'm going to organize my, my comments on Joshua around a very simple outline. I'm not going to use that chiasm uh, that's in the notes. That's for your further study. But the very simple way to outline Joshua is to see it as basically two equal sections. The first 12 chapters of Joshua are about the conquest, and the second half of Joshua is about the distribution of the land. Uh, the, uh, in, the first, in the first 12 chapters, we have the stories of Jericho and the conquest of Jericho, the failure of the conquest of uh, Ai, the initial failure and the future, later conquest. We have stories about uh, the Gibeonites. We have other uh, stories about conquest. And then at the end of that section, we learned that the land had rest from war. That's the last phrase of uh, Joshua 11, verse 23. Thus the land had rest from war. And then chapter 12 is a summary of the 31 kings who were conquered in Canaan. And now Yahweh has been, Yahweh, the Lord, has been uh, installed, has conquered, and he is now the 32nd of the kings of Canaan. Okay. So first, first 12 chapters are about the conquest. We'll look at those in more detail. The second 12 chapters are about the distribution of the land by lot to different tribes. So each tribe, of course, is going to get a different section of the land. Uh, the Levites are the one exception to that. The Levites don't get a section of the land. Uh, and we'll, we'll talk a, a bit about the Levites. But the very detailed geographic descriptions of the land uh, and the portions of the land that Israel gets in the latter half of Joshua. Um, those, are the two, the, those are the two main sections. Uh, one important uh, point in seeing how those two are linked and how they anticipate the book of Judges. I just read the end of uh, Joshua 11, the land had rest from war. Uh, that doesn't mean that there's no more territory to conquer. In fact, just at the few chapters, uh, one chapter later, the beginning of chapter 13, Joshua was old and advanced in years when the Lord said to him, you are old and advanced in years, and very much of the land remains to be possessed. So the land had rest from war, you know, 25 verses later, much of the land remains to be possessed. Is that contradiction? It's not a contradiction. Both things are true. Israel has taken mastery of the land. They are the controlling power in the land at the end of chapter 11 because of the conquest. And yet there is land that still needs to be conquered, but it's going to be conquered tribe by tribe. So the land is now uh, 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 under, under Israel's uh, control, but there's still idols to purge, Canaanites to conquer, land to be secured, and each tribe is going to do that in a portion of the land. So the whole conquest is not supposed to take place in the seven years of the, uh, of the conquest recounted in the first 12 chapters. That's the conquest that... Uh, brings Israel into a state a condition of mastery, and then each tribe is to carry out its own uh, finishing, uh, they're supposed to uh, do a finishing work in their own territories. And that's what, that's what the tribes failed to do at the beginning of the book of Judges. At the beginning of the book of Judges, Israel is still in the condition where they have mastery of the land, but the tribes are not continuing the conquest and possessing the land that they were called to do. Okay, so conquest and then distribution uh, basically, the book is split in half. 
And the conquest is, takes place over seven years. There's a week of conquest. And I think that the number, the number of years is a significant number. Um, sevens are very important number. Uh, seven is a very important number in the Bible. There are a lot of sections of the Bible, portions of the Bible that are arranged in uh, by some kind of seven-fold pattern. Uh, there are seven periods of time in a lot of uh, in a lot of narratives. Sometimes there's a half of seven, uh, three and a half years, or time, times, and half a time. That's three and a half. Okay, that's that's a half a week. So the 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 that's a that's a broken a broken seven. The 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 root of the sevenfold patterns in the Bible is always the uh, the creation account. The seven days of creation. We sometimes hear that the number seven implies fullness, and I think there's something to that. But I think it's better to link it more concretely with uh, Genesis one and the creation account. Um, so when you have a sevenfold, uh, like here, seven years of conquest, uh, the the number points to the reality of what's happening to Canaan. Canaan is being dismantled during those seven years. In order to be, it's being decreated, as it were, in order to be recreated. Um, that's the, the seven. The number seven is used um, frequently to to highlight not a building of a world, but a dismantling of a world. But it's like a, a reversal of creation. So the, all the seven sevenfold sequences in the book of Revelation, uh, seven seals, seven trumpets, uh, seven bowls, all of those are destructive. They're not creative. That's not a creative seven. That's a de-creative seven. And you can follow the, if you look at those sequences, you can see how they're matching up with the days of creation. Uh, a world is being torn apart in the book of Revelation. And that, that uh, feature of the, of, the, of the prophecy is reinforced by the re- use of the number seven. You can also have, of course, sevenfold sequences that are constructive. Um, probably the most... Uh, Important of these is in in Exodus, uh, where the I mentioned uh, earlier today that a large section of the Book of Exodus recounts the uh, it, it contains instructions for building the tabernacle. The first part of that is contained in uh, Exodus 25 to Exodus 31. Those are the initial delivery of the instructions for the tabernacle. That section of Exodus is uh, organized as seven speeches of God. Uh, each of the speeches begins with the Lord spoke to Moses saying and he gives them some instructions and then the Lord spoke to Moses saying and some more instructions. The Lord spoke to Moses saying more instructions. The last of those speeches is the Lord spoke to Moses saying keep the Sabbath. So the seventh speech is a reiteration of the Sabbath command which takes us back to the seventh day of creation. Uh, There's clearly intended to be a link between the building of the tabernacle in, by Israel and the building of the world by God. God's constructing a temple in Genesis 1 over seven days. He's constructing a cosmic temple, a universe, which is supposed to be filled with his presence, a place of prayer and praise. And Israel is building a small scale, a microcosm, a small scale world where God is present and where God is, is supposed to be filled with praise. So the, the organization of that passage shows that in building the tabernacle, Israel is engaged in a kind of new creation activity. They're bringing a small 
not recreating the world as a whole, but they're, being, they're creating a new uh, model of the cosmos, of what the cosmos is supposed to be, which is a place for the presence of God and a place where people worship God. Okay. So that, that all to uh, highlight and um, ex- expand on the fact that this is a seven-year seven conquest, a seven-year conquest, and then at the end of chapter 11, the land has rest from war. Okay. A, a hint of a Sabbath. At the end of uh, six, seven years of battle, they have a Sabbath, and then the land gets distributed as part of the Sabbath uh, of the conquest. Okay. That's the overall scope of things. Uh, there are three stages to the conquest, to the seven-year conquest. The opening chapters, uh, from chapters one through uh, seven, are uh, recount two main battles that take place in the central territory of Canaan. Uh, Israel crosses over into Canaan. Uh, the first thing they do, once they've crossed over into Canaan, crossing through the Jordan River, all the men get circumcised. If you were planning battle tactics for a conquest, would you think, first thing we do when we get within range of the enemy city is disable all the guys for a few days um, by circumcising them? Uh, that's, that doesn't seem to be a good military tactic, but it's a tremendous act of faith that they're going into the land. They're now within sight of Jericho. And uh, you know, if the, if the king of, does the king of Jericho know that they all just mutilated themselves? You know, back, in, back in Genesis, you might remember the story of uh, Dinah, who's one of the daughters of Jacob, who's taken by a man named Shechem, uh, Shechem sleeps with Dinah, and uh, then they make an arrangement for marriage, and the, the arrangement is all of the men of Shechem have to, have to be circumcised. But this is a ruse, and Simeon and Levi, two sons of Jacob, gather, some, uh, uh, gather a, a company of warriors, and they attack the city of Shechem and kill all the guys who've just been circumcised, okay? because they're not real able to defend themselves shortly after a circumcision. They're not in good fighting spirit, good fighting shape. Um, not only from the physical pain, but just you know, kind of the embarrassment of being circumcised. So uh, that puts Israel in an incredibly vulnerable position in the face of Jericho. So they go into the land, they circumcise, uh, roll off, as it says, they roll away this shame or the uh, reproach of, G- of Egypt. Uh, there, uh, there's a kind of renewal there then they celebrate the Passover. Those are the first things they do in the land, circumcision and Passover. Okay, and then they conquer Jericho. Uh, we'll talk about the way that they conquered Jericho in just a bit. In, in a bit. And then from Jericho, they go on to a smaller city named Ai. Uh, Ai is a much smaller city and so small that Jer- Joshua doesn't even think he needs an entire, uh, an entire uh, company of soldiers to go and fight against it. But they get beaten back by the men of Ai. And the reason is because Achan, a member of the tribe of Judah, has taken some of the plunder from Jericho, plunder that belonged to Yahweh, the Lord, and he's buried it in his own tent. He's got the Lord's stuff, and the Lord uh, lets Israel get beaten by the men of Ai until they're taken care of. 
And so you have that crisis taken care of and Israel conquers Ai. So now they have Joshua, uh, Jericho and Ai are the two main cities that they've conquered. They've taken the central territory of the land and then they have this covenant renewal ceremony that's in Joshua 8. Okay. That's the first stage of the conquest. The second stage of the conquest begins with uh, the Gibeonites. This is in Joshua chapter 9. Uh, and this is going to lead into the southern campaign that where they take control of the southern territories of the land. The Gibeonites, you might remember, are the people that they live nearby Jericho. They see what happened to Jericho, and they don't want it to happen to them. So instead of trying to resist Joshua, they find a deceptive way to become allied with uh, Israel. And so they pretend that they've come from a long distance. They, ha they get moldy bread. They put on torn clothes. A delegation goes out from Gibeon, uh, from, uh, Gibeon. And they say, we've come from a long way. We've heard about the Lord. We've heard about the conquest. We want to be part of your people. Uh, accept us as allies. And Joshua, without consulting the Lord, swears in the name of the Lord that, uh, that the Gibeonites can become part of Israel. And they're given a task of serving in Israel. Okay. Uh, then, then Joshua discovers that they were, in fact, just a neighboring city, one of the cities that they were supposed to conquer. But he's sworn in the name of the Lord. And so he keeps his vow, and the Gibeonites are incorporated into Israel, and they are a permanently protected people within Israel. Uh, in the book of uh, uh, Samuel, uh, late in 2 Samuel, the Lord gets angry with Israel, because of what Saul did to the Gibeonites. These are the Gibeonites from the book of Joshua. This is several centuries later, and Saul abuses the Gibeonites, and the Lord is angry with Saul because of that, and brings a famine, and there has to be a retribution paid for Saul's violation of this people. So this people comes into Israel and is a, under the Lord's protection because Joshua swore in the Lord's name. So now we've got Gibeon. It's one of the cities of uh, Canaan, it's a, it's a major city in that territory, and the other kings of the Canaanite city-states don't want Gibeon to be allied with Israel, because that, that alliance is going to be endangering them. They, they also know what happened at Jericho. They, they're afraid of what the Lord can do to them, and now the Israelites have Gibeon as an ally, and so the king of Jerusalem, Adonai Zedek, the king of Jerusalem, attacks Gibeon, uh, and in order to break up this alliance in order to bring Gibeon back into alliance with the other kings of Canaan. Okay. Um, and Gibeah, Gibeon uh, appeals to Joshua for help, which he offers and provides. And so the Israelites enter into this battle in order to defend an ally. And in defending that ally, in defending Gibeon, they end up uh, sweeping through the southern part of the land uh, conquering a series of seven cities that are listed in Joshua 10 from verses 28 uh, to 43. They conquer seven cities in the southern part of the land and basically take control of that southern territory as the, in the aftermath of a, uh, a war of defense uh, to defend an ally. 
Okay? So now they have the central section, the second stage is the southern campaign, and then the third stage again begins with, um, in a kind of defensive mode. Again, it's because the kings that are in Canaan, Canaan is a patchwork of city-states. There's no unified government in Canaan. It's, uh, it, it talks about the kings of Canaan, but they're kings of cities and the surrounding territories, or maybe several cities, perhaps. They're not, they're not kings of large, large territories. There are lots of kings in, in Canaan. So the, some of the kings, uh, are, again, are fearful of Israel. They know that Israel is now not only has conquered Jericho, a great city, they're allied with Gibeon, another major city. They've just swept through the south and conquered a large part and taken control of a large part of the southern territory. And so some of the northern kings say, we don't want him, Israel to take our territory. Let's preemptively attack them. So beginning in chapter 11, we have the story of that northern conquest. And again, Israel defends itself from a direct attack this time. And in the course of defending itself from that direct attack, uh, conquers the kings of the north and basically takes control of the northern territory. Uh, so by the end of uh, Joshua 11, we've had that three-stage conquest, and Israel has taken control of the land. Uh, the eastern side of the Jordan, what's called the Transjordan side, a portion of that was already conquered uh, by, during, under, during the life of Moses. And uh, uh, Reuben... Gad and the, half, and the half of the tribe of Manasseh have settled in that Transjordanian area. Okay. Uh, they've come over to fight with their other Israelites, but that's their land. That's already been conquered. Now they've come into the land and they've basically taken control of the land uh, over that period of time. Now, uh, what that means is the Lord, as I said, has become the 32nd king of Canaan. And he's now king not just of one or two city-states, but through Israel he, and the tribes of Israel, he's claiming the whole as his own land. Okay. Uh, uh, what, uh, what, uh, I, I will expand on this in a few minutes after the break, but um, the Lord, is the, the Lord is, the, is the warrior for Israel. The Lord is the one who conquers. And having conquered, he takes his throne. That's, that's a sabbatical theme in the Bible. Enthronement is a sabbatical theme. Uh, enthronement is not just rest, Enthronement is rest at the end of war. Or, or Sabbath is not just rest, but Sabbath is the end, a rest at the end of war. So, or the end of building. Okay. Uh, one, of the, one of the basic storylines or narrative patterns in the Bible is a pattern of conquest, building, and enthronement. Conquest, and then you take the spoils of conquest to build a house, and then you take your rest as the ruler in the house. The Lord conquers Egypt. Israel takes the spoils of Egypt. They build the tabernacle, and the Lord is enthroned in the tabernacle. Conquest, uh, conquest, house building, and enthronement. And the same thing is happening here in Joshua. Uh, conquest, and the Lord is entering into his, uh, in, into his throne, into his Sabbath rest and glory uh, and at the center of the distribution of the land is going to be the, uh, the, the uh, selection of the place where God's house is going to be, uh, God's house is going to be built and set. Okay. Uh, 